0: My name is Daniel Glazer. Um, It's a delight to be here. Um, I'm a neuroscientist uh, uh, by background. This, as some of you will know, is one of a long series of meetings uh, between the Royal Society of Literature and the Royal Society. It's brilliant, I think, to bring the two cultures, if we can say it that way, together in this form. Um, uh, What we're going to do is to have some performance, fairly evidently, uh, which we'll introduce uh, briefly. Um, and then there'll be a break for you to talk among yourselves, uh, most importantly perhaps refill your glasses, uh, and then there'll be a a discussion, um, and the whole thing will wrap up at 8.30 for those of you that have trains to catch. So we're going to introduce it in a funny sort of way. Uh, The first person I want to to call upon to introduce herself is is Veronica, uh, because she'll be joining us later. But, But if you'd say a word or two about your background so that you know what's coming, folks.
1: So I'm Veronica van Heeningen. I'm a human geneticist. Uh, and I come from the Royal Society side. I've worked for a long time on uh, the genetics of eye disease, so I'm interested in perception. I thought I might just also say that I'm a non-native English speaker, and um, perhaps because of that, very interested in words.
0: (laughs) Thank you. And we'll we'll look at these forms of translation, I think, a little bit later. And then we've got, obviously, two other uh, participants... Don, do you want to say you introduce yourself as it were, professionally?
2: (coughs) Sure, I just want to say a word about Graeme Stephen first, which is, I I can't believe they've managed to to con one of the finest musicians in Scotland to to come in and play um, uh, with me, so I'm particularly delighted about that. I mean, uh, Graeme wouldn't tell you any of this, but (laughs) um, if you know anything about jazz, you'll know Graeme's name. Uh, My name's uh, Don Patterson, I'm I'm a poet, I teach uh, poetry at St Andrew's University and I Um, Publish work as a publisher for Picador Macmillan, and um, I was uh, attached to the uh, Constructing Scientific Communities project as a kind of sort of poet in residence. I think (laughs) kind of legacy component (laughs) or something. Um, So I've responded, (laughs) uh, you know, to that uh, creatively.
0: And we should say a word or two, perhaps, of history. I mean, I think, you know, the, the rule when you introduce a band is that you only say the name of the band once and it's the last thing you say. Uh, so we've broken that already. But we, we thought the kind of run-up would be important. So we've got Keith here from the library, who's going to speak perhaps later, and, and, uh, and Sally Shuttleworth from Oxford. But basically, there's, there is this project called Constructing Scientific Communities. And I guess if we are interested, as, as, as we are presumably because we've chosen to be here, about the way that these two kind of cultures and these societies can interact... Uh, it's interesting, I think, to think about the territory where they can overlap. So I think when the Royal Society was founded, uh, pretty much anyone could do science. And in fact, as we know, the word scientist wasn't invented until about 1836, uh, at a meeting of the British Science Association. So for, for the first hundred years or two of the Royal Society, there wasn't this professional designation, this separation. And I think it's interesting also, if we're interested, as the Royal Society I know is, about the future of intelligence to ask what are the things that people can still do better than machines, and also what are the things which amateurs can do that is still part of science. Right? Science is a very professional discipline. I think the project that you've been attached to is this Zooniverse project. I don't know whether you want... I mean, neither of us know a lot about it, but I don't know whether between us we can give people a sense of what the Zooniverse project is about, because I think it is interesting in the context.
2: It's a kind of uh, umbrella portal for a lot of other projects, some of which are are aspects of the Constructing Scientific Communities um, project. Um, but it's a it's a way of as far as I can I'm the worst person to explain this. <laughs> it's a way of crowdsourcing research, I think, and just getting sort of anyone who wants to get involved involved in, in an incredibly diverse range of different scientific projects. Yes. You know, and um, in the course of which I got I got <coughs> my hands dirty transcribing some ships' logs from Arctic trawlers, and and uh, I looked for a few quasars as you do. Um, <laughs> So um, if you haven't uh, poked around in the Zooniverse, I urge you to do so. It's really astonishing, and it makes you think better of the species. Yeah.
0: There's over a million people around the world who are registered on Zooniverse, and again, if you log on, you can see. But, but, but the tasks that, it, uh, that they're asked to perform are things which people still do better than machines, uh, and that includes looking at uh, ast- uh, structures from space and uh, finding meaning in them. So I think that's probably enough. Uh, by way of preamble, but I wanted you to know the, the journey which has brought Don and Graham to this spot. Uh, they're going to perform now for about uh, half an hour, a little more, uh, and then there'll be the break. So, ladies and gentlemen, we had a little warm up clap, but let's do it properly to uh, welcome to their performance Don Patterson and Graham Stevens. <laughs>
2: That was a tune by uh, one of our favourite guitar players who uh, died last year, a man called John Abercrombie, um, who was a really amazing musician. Um, It was was called Parameo. This is an old tune of mine uh, called Waltz for Rosa. I'll do this. About all the tuning. There used to be lots of jokes that you could make about tuning. Um, but they're mostly racist, actually. We're going to play a a tune called The Lavender Truck, and it commemorates uh, uh, a near-death experience I once suffered. Um, And some of you may know the poet Michael Donaghy, the the late, great uh, Irish-American poet. And we were on holiday together in Provence, uh, Mm -hmm. and there was a truckload of lavender coming towards us, and the guy's brakes failed, and it was a very narrow street so I we'll had to crush against the side of the street in order to avoid what would have been a, a fragrant and uh, you know, memorable <laughs> um, demise um, so I, I wrote this tune afterwards and I realised that when I got home and I started writing it that I didn't know how Provençal music went uh, and because this, made, this tune maybe pre-Google uh, I, d- I couldn't be bothered to find out but I knew how Breton music went so it sounds a bit like Breton music <coughs> so it's um will shut and play it now, sorry the <laughs> first I'm going to read some stuff at you now um, that came out of the project and and maybe throw in a couple of uh, uh, other poems that um, were written because that was the kind of turn my my mind took after having been involved in it. Um, And then just to bring us up to time, we'll throw in one we tune to send you whistling into the interval, um, albeit bleakly. What I'll read isn't necessarily typical of the things that came out of the project. They will be published in some form next year. um, But the bit I I thought I would read is, it's not, I hate the phrase stream of consciousness. I mean, we all do, but I mean, sometimes there's no substitute for things that make no no sense. Um, But this one ranges across several uh, uh, topics that are of concern to all of us just now. Um, maybe the most concerning things, climate change, uh, impending nuclear war and a um, disruption and uh, warping of digital communication. Um, probably the top three at the moment I would think. Uh, so I, I'll, I'll read a chunk of this poem and a lot of it uh, refers to things I was doing in the Zooniverse. uh, weird things to do with uh, ship's logs Um, uh, Charles Lyle uh, comes up um, and I may occasionally pause the point poem and explain what the hell I'm talking about otherwise you'll just be enjoying it as a kind of word disco Um, (laughs) but uh, you'll you'll get the picture I may, depending on how brave I'm feeling uh, it goes, it veers off into politics uh, sort of at the end and it's it's kind of impossible not to at the moment because it's Seems to be all we're thinking about. Um Working title at the moment is just the researcher. <coughs> and the scene is I'm doing some research and I know the bomb the bomb's about to drop and I have to decide whether I'm gonna do it or just you know, stop or just keep doing it anyway, even though you know, it's all over. Which it might well be In a month. Um, my first bright idea was to garrison myself on the old weather station on top of Ben Nevis, whose purpose had been to determine how atmosphere altered with height and compare barometrics at sea level down in Fort William. It would also afford me an excellent view of the blast, so I thought I'd killed two birds, there were still two left to kill. I was not unaware of the basic perversity of my plan to ride out a nuclear winter transcribing minute variations in pressure gauge readings from 1902 to find out if short, heavy rainfall increases in frequency, roughly in line with predictions of climate change. This, Like you, this strikes me as taking a nut to a sledgehammer, yet without a small part in the large enterprise, we are no one to call ourselves human. Research was never my strong point, however and I'm always confusing the means and the end. There was no special reason to do this in situ, plus I'd failed to observe that the station had shut down in 1904. <laughs> Still, I pitched my pop tent in the ruins and started uploading my stats to the cloud. Then the cloud disappeared. They said this would happen first. The digital void can mean one of two things, the total reboot and the great singularity, or the powers had powered off the grid and would soon let the nukes do the talking. I stared at the empty bars on my phone the way that a Hokkaido fisherman might consider an oarfish he'd found on the beach, with a sigh than a long stare at the horizon. (coughs) Excuse me. En route to Dundee. Thank you so much, sir. Hell of a drum roll, that, isn't it? En route to Dundee. What was he going (coughs) to (coughs) say? I ended up in Dundee in the worst part in Dundee in the scenario. En route to Dundee, I stopped off in Angus, where, near Curremure and just off Windy Ghoul, at the back of the woods of Kinordy Estate, there was, for three years, a small, holy settlement the kids had a name for. And there, in this featureless patch of renewable spruce, they built an elaborate bothy of branches and leaves, a stone pit for a fire, and daubed the trees with yellow runes. Here they would gather at nightfall, the frowning and unstubbled faces lit from below as they conducted their occult affairs. For this was the one tiny spot for eight miles with 4G reception. <laughs> True story. <coughs> I imagine the young Charles Lyle you may know is from the Kenogia estate, and where I used to live in Kerrymure. End of footnote. I imagine the young Charles Lyle roaming his sylvan domain at the back of the Highland Boundary Fault, his young intellect tending already to orogenetics and glacial till, feel a strange clarity right here at this vague intersection of ditches and intuit a global network of minds, converging somehow at this point where my children would check, check on their Snapchat accounts and Brian would DM the dick pics that one day would so underwhelm his prospective employers. The present is key to the past, Lyle wrote. But now that the past and the present are fused, the present can't sleep or forget. And the future is not, as they say, where it used to be. There is no preschool sin, no intrauterine tweet you may not be held to account for. Behold the endless arcade of your personal history, your past stretching out like the future. That future, the ancients correctly inferred, was behind us. God knows ours is. I need to move now while I can. As long as the pillars and cause are extant, the Arctic will not be the worst pub in town. I am here because, as I earlier mentioned, as a poet I'm minded to take things too literally. This seemed the best place to continue my work, transcribing by hand the ship's logs of old Arctic whalers I'm helping to fill in I am helping to fill in the gaps in our knowledge of sea ice conditions, in the hope that it will help us to somehow anticipate broad patterns of polar depletion. Last week the sea level rose by a foot, so once again don't ask or ask the damn horse. It happened at three in the afternoon. I was deciphering the forgivably shambolic hand of third mate Albert Ahara, who is whining about a squally force nine of Ellesmere Island. At least you had weather accursed. All that we knew of the blast in the bar were the pale yellow coffins of light that took minutes to fade and then darkness. Yes, coffins. Literally. This next bit is true. In the bar's six locked doors are six coffin-shaped panes for six dundee whalers who died on the Hebe in 1819. They all went the same way, overboard in a storm, hunting the baleen for train oil. The baleen, taxonomically speaking, are mysticeti. But there's no enigmatic about them. Their name is a translation error from Aristotle's homus tocatos, the whale called the mouse. We assumed he was having a laugh of the sort that they had when the laugh was in beta. I remembered all this from the wiki. With the net down and all that we'd left of it gone, it's a terror to find oneself suddenly contracted to no more than that which one's mind had thought to retain. I used to be happy when the identical tear-tracked Albanian kid stole my phone in St Pancras each summer and almost looked forward to losing my contacts and diary and to-do lists, but these days it's like a lobotomy. That said, I was greatly encouraged when I heard of how Facebook had placed two AIs in direct conversation only to have them establish their own private language within 15 minutes of saying hello, inducing a panicked shutdown of the system. Whatever our fears in regard to our silicon overseers and to what degree they may merely reflect the evil inscribed into physical law, they can hardly do worse now, can they? We will see what we jingle they play at the power-up. Scotland, it gets nationalistic now, for which I apologise. I'm not a nationalist, but I'm a patriot. There is a difference. Scotland, my country, began in Antarctica a third of a billion years back and is made of far older rock than is England's. When I was young and my humours were clear, my piss was like snowmelt and my blood was like wine. But fifty-five years of whatever dark pole lies in our bedrock of Archaean gneiss has rusted my blood till it crawls and I talk like a sentient curled lip. Sound instinct had Hadrian build up a great wall along the Iapetus suture after the necessity of keeping the empire within its limits had been laid upon him by divine precept. Tell yourself what you need to, my friend. Just don't let the door hit your arse. But don't get me wrong. (coughs) One needs to be local and everywhere. Scots, European, Dundonian, world citizen me, and therefore not one to dwell upon trivial regrets like the Union, the Darien scheme, or Columba. No, no. Primarily, I deplore the collision of Laurentia and Baltica and the subsequent closure of the Iapetus Ocean. For now, I would barter the whole Caledonian origin, even you, my sweet Sullivan, God's shining pillar, for any old landmass I don't have to share with Jacob rees Mog. <laughs> <laughs> <Yay. coughs> whom I pray that the bomb has just—sorry, wh- whom I pray that the bomb has just rendered, preferably upon the immaculate brickwork of Wentworth, they cleaned up with my taxes, his own Banksy. Sorry about that. Um, But for now, I'll press on in the coffin light here in the Arctic, being exactly where Scotland is heading, albeit at only the rate of my fingernails. But I am nothing, I swear, if not patient. And it goes on. (laughs) Um, They're too kind. And it maybe shouldn't go on. I'm <laughs> saying, saying, but uh, I'll, I'll, we'll make it executive about that later. Um, I'll uh, I'll read a couple more things, um, and then we'll play you something. <coughs> I'll read. Um, you know, I'm going to read this, wee poem here, um, which is just called. Uh, uh, Sodari, or sodaj, I guess, if you're Brazilian, Uh, sodaj for Brexit. Uh, And it's a a song which is a version of a a, a Portuguese uh, Fado song uh, by a wonderful singer called Manuela de Freitas. Um, And and the song is called Aminha Rua, uh, My Road. Um, And I've sort of adapted it for Brexit-related ends. What became of my road when fall came its way? The moon has been stowed and the cars put away. All the houses are shrines, they're so empty and still. No clothes in the line, no flowers in the sill. There's no sign of life down the market arcade where we'd all watch the fishwife flip with the trade. The cooks shot the crow and the teachers gone west. There's no one here now but the nurse and the priest. The dead station clock forgets every train. It's as still as the cock in the old weather vane. The bar has changed hands and the bookstores closed down. Oh, my street's no man's land since fall came to town. Good, some folks say, it's a much quieter place. It's true. Look all day and you won't see a face. Jeez, and just I'll finish up with uh, a poem that came out of the project. Very kind of tangentially, um, <coughs> it's called "Death," just to cheer you up a wee bit. Just after the last <laughs> one, <laughs> so it's so op- optimistic compared with the previous one. Um, I, and I really got interested in whether the the genre of science fiction poetry was possible. Um, <laughs> I'm not sure what to conclude. <coughs> I apologise. This is one of the, the downsides of trying to read things off your iPad like a hipster. It's, uh, it's actually <laughs> hard to find everything. Um, it, it, it imagines the character of Death and tries to have some sympathy with him and his line of work. And it's based on an old episode of The Twilight Zone uh, where somebody tries to fool Death. death, his trick by which I mean the way he'd convince you of his earnestness was to pop up at some random random and unpredictable, excuse me, pop up at some random and unpredictable post, unruffled, immaculate like he'd been there all along vaping at the turn of the stairs, taking a piss in the adjacent stall or turning round from the seat in front at the empty matinee saying, come on we've been through this And again, I'd up and leave and mutter, I'm not ready yet. And he'd say, okay, bud, see you tonight, knowing we all got worn down by this in the end. Before they kicked me upstairs, I used to work in sales. I still have a case of free samples and an eye for an easy mark. One day he was working through some genre cliches just to keep himself amused. And I was closing the mirrored bathroom cabinet when I saw him at my shoulder. I yelped, he yelped back, I turned round and we fell into the usual tired exchange. But I caught him running the back of his hand across my Pima cotton towels and sneak a sidelong look at my new Sonic toothbrush with more than just a casual interest. I noticed that his Prada suit was a size too large and his floral tea cologne was Tommy Girl, though it smelled pretty good on him. And then I really saw it, his weakness. I said, look, look, I'll do you a deal. No deals, he said, you know that. Hear me out, I say, it's legit. Give me another 20 years and I'll kick you out. I'll be your go-to guy, seriously. Knock down rates, guaranteed. He said nothing, but the sweat was forming in his upper lip and brow. I got out the case and I did my old routine, told him I'm practically giving this stuff away. It was difficult to see him so easily played, so reduced, so worried and frantic. Me pulling out one thing after another, Suddenly wondering if he could afford it all, patting his pockets, wondering if I took plastic, wondering if he had plastic, what plastic even was, his arms full of all the cool new things he wanted a black fedora, a snakeskin belt, the silk tie with a Mondrian design. But then realizing he was neither, technically neither salaried nor self employed, a slave to his work, he'd always thought, but really just a slave, hand to mouth, hardly ever in the same town, two nights in a row sleeping on couches between gigs, everything he wore lifted from the closets of the dead, everything he ate, whatever the dead had left and eaten on the stove after he'd walked him to the car. All he wanted was a night off, a table at Cleo's so he could work through the card and to go home with his own stuff around him, some old jazz on vinyl, a valve amplifier, a good espresso machine and a workout bike and maybe a wife and kids too in time. Whenever he thought of them or what they'd talk about round the big TV, the kitchen table as he made his famous chilli, or the school gate after hockey practice, all he could ever think of was him delivering the bad news as usual. The worst. What do you mean I must leave with you now, Daddy? Don't think for a second that death loves his work. Even though I couldn't stop, we both knew he couldn't pay for any of this stuff. I was holding back the tears for him. Who wants to see their own death fall to such a two-bit hustle? In the end, I gave up. I hugged him. I said, honestly, it's okay, it's okay, I'll go with you. Just give me five to get some things and say goodbye to folks. And he was fine with that. And so grateful when I really did come back, carrying a near new pair of brogues, a couple of good shirts and a nice blue jacket that would fit him well. And I could see in his eyes that over the years, he'd lost more than a few of us this way to this old play. And each of us had cost him like a life. Thank you. We're going to finish up with a, 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 a tune of, I'm going to finish up with two tunes of Farewell, actually. Um, one is European. And the other is more local and if you wanted to read into the second one any um, patriotic allegory that would be entirely up to you um, but the first one is, is the, uh, we'll play the uh, 55th Highland Division's f- uh, Highland Battalion, excuse me Farewell to Sicily uh, which is a sort of a peabroch by Hamish Henderson uh, and we'll segue into a Robert Burns tune um, called A Fond Kiss That should bring us up to the interval.
0: Well, uh, if I can speak for the scientists, um, the the words of Mercury are harsh after the songs of Apollo, you that way, uh, we this way. There's a pint at the bar afterwards for those of you that can tell me the end of which Shakespeare play that is. Um, We're not going to do politics after the break, uh, but I do remember, and I should say that all political persuasions are welcome in the discussion uh, uh, personally, uh, in 2016, as some of us saw that the events unfold uh, and, uh, with mounting horror, I do remember a friend saying, well, whatever happens to the world, it's going to produce some bloody good art. Uh, and so, in a sense, uh, the responses that we've heard uh, this evening attest to that. And also, I suppose Don's role as poet in residence uh, in the scientific project, we could see part of what we've heard as being a response to the science that was done and we'll look at questions like that when we come back. But before you go to the bar, please join me in thanking Professor Don Patterson and Mr Graham Stephen. Good. So, um, welcome back. Now, um, Veronica, we've heard less from you so far than we have from Don, uh, and so I thought we'd start um, uh, uh, with, with you. And we were speaking earlier a little bit about colour, um, yes. and I wonder, with would would thinking about colour be a good way uh, to begin to think from your perspective of how non-scientific, we might say literary or cultural, ways of thinking have influenced your work or how they play a role in in the way that you conduct your daily business as a scientist?
1: Well, colour is very important in perception, Um, but I think words are more important. Mm -hmm. I, I think you really can't do science without a lot of language, a lot of discussion um, and so I think the uh, example of poetry and poets is something that we should take very seriously. Um, the um, motto of the Royal Society is nullius in verba, take no one's words for it. But that doesn't mean to say that we don't use words. We use words all the time. We have to argue um, and discuss in order to get to the heart of the matter. And I think, in a way, that is what poets do as well.
0: But if you think about scientific writing, you know, the peer-reviewed literature and so on, it's a very formulaic and very impoverished form of expression, arguably. Do you think scientists think enough about the words that they use? (laughs)
1: I don't know about enough, but they certainly think a lot. Yes. I think you can't really communicate properly without words. I do remember um, our son, when he was about three or four, and I suppose his sister was not yet speaking, asking whether um, babies uh, can think when they can't talk. And I don't know. Do you think one can think without words? <laughs>
2: it's a huge controversy. <laughs> it's, uh, it's a can of worms, aren't we? I don't know. I mean, it, it, I mean some people would say that, you know, um, it's a capacity for language that lays down the kind of watercourse along which we can do our thinking and, and, um, and we're born with that, you know, and that's an age. Um, so it, I don't know. Um, well, I, I think I we can definitely think without words. That's a kind of positive yes. argument. And that we've, uh, hopefully we've kicked that into touch. But it's the thinking around the edge. I think, is really interesting. You know, right at the, at the limit of what language can do, because I think that's what science and, and poetry have in common, yes. is that we're 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 trying to get things into 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 language in some form that previously haven't been articulated. So you're working right at the point at which kind of language sort of fails, and we both in, in science and poetry resort to metaphor, yes. you know, in order to you know. I, to
1: I w- yes, exactly. I, I was going to say metaphor is one of the things that is common <coughs> to. Um, both endeavours. Yeah, We were
0: talking, Don, before, you're a professor, as it were, of poetry, which means that you're involved with both uh, encouraging people to write poetry, but also to think about poetry. And the literariness, the literary pursuits, uh, include in most cases a consideration of the form that you're working in. So most artists are encouraged to think about the nature of art and to criticize painting. Most poets think about words. Science, in a way, doesn't reflect upon its own practice in in quite the same sense. Most scientists, at least in my experience, are completely hopeless in trying to describe what they're actually doing, the endeavor that they're doing. In other words, there are people who make a living from describing what science is like, historians or philosophers of science, and the views that scientists have of what they're doing are very far from that. Do you think Literary pursuits are more reflexive, that you're thinking about what you're doing more
2: yeah. than... You sort of... N- n- yes and no, it depends... I'm provoking you, you all, to.
0: folks, so you're going to come in with your, your muttering, <laughs> I know, I know, I can
2: hear you. Huh. Yes. Yeah. It, it depends who you speak to. I mean, there are some poets that are, that are desperate to preserve the mystery of it and don't want to know any linguistic explanations, you know, sort of of how um, the kind of poetic mode in, 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 in speech, which is all it is, uh, you know, sort of... Uh, Uh, Applies to poetry. They they insist that it be kept a cult, otherwise, you know, some of the magic will go. But I mean, but there are folk like me who, who are fascinated by it. The, the mechanism whereby you can accomplish these things, and, you know, and, the, and the science behind it very often as well.
0: And I think it's very interesting what you've described there, because I think many people who don't think about literature much would imagine that, that sort of the, the division between those who want to understand how things work and those who don't, as it were, the Dawkins narrow unweaving of the rainbow, would be, as it were, an art-science thing. But actually, of course, within art, there are those who like to understand
2: and those who, who'd rather not. Yeah, and whether it has any effect in the end result or not, I don't know. I suspect it probably doesn't. I mean, it's just really a temperamental inclination. But there are definitely some of us who who are interested in why we do this thing called poetry in the culture and why it won't go away, Um, you know, despite (laughs) repeated attempts to try and make it go away. uh, I often get a call from a journalist who's who's informing who will inform me of the death of poetry again, and just like, and, you know. Would you like you to know. comment? But we're currently, I'm living through my fourth poetry renaissance at the moment, so that's like I've watched poetry f- die four times so far. So it's it's, uh, it's kind of you know it's in a kind of absurd sort of cycle.
0: I mean, in in your practice, if we can use that word as a scientist, do you make efforts to engage with the arts or with humanities? Do, do you do you?
1: Absolutely. I, I Is it a formal I thing
0: for you? Because Don's part of a formal program here, which you know the, 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 that we've referred to earlier. But I mean, what, what's the way in which you encounter? different Well,
1: I've right? been interested in art and literature ever since um, I was young at school, um, and, uh, and I think that that really keeps one going. It, it gives you a much broader vision. It makes you think in a different way. It's very important to um, think in pictures. Actually, um, I think science presents some fantastic images. The imagery of science, especially with modern um, imaging techniques, is fantastic, and I think it's inspired a lot of visual art. But I think it could inspire um, poetry as well, because I don't know whether you look at um, Images of cells and neurons, but they are fantastic. They
2: are fantastic, and I wonder at them. I mean, and I would like to be the kind of person who's inspired by that kind of thing. But I mean, but I think sometimes you have to leave the, the poetry where you find it, you know. And it's and, and it's often just in the, in the beholding. I mean, I love science just because of the wonder that, that, that you know that it creates, um, but I, I think inspiration is kind of, is, is weirder than that, you know it's, it's, you, the, the rule with poetry is that you can't steal your poem, that you have to make it up so that your poem as you're writing it becomes a process of discovery so it's, it's, it's um, so that you don't arrive at the page with with your wonder, sort of good to go you know, you have to kind of amaze yourself in the process somehow, so, so it's in the process that you, that you get to the truth so I mean again there are parallels with your
1: how do you work at it? I mean, how do you start?
2: You go in with a hunch. You go in with a kind of, you know, sort of a sperm and an egg, a, 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 you know, and a, a two things that kind of etch or go together somehow, but you don't know how. You know, so, and between their kind of mutual agitation, they, th- there's this generative process, and then you suddenly you discover stuff that you didn't know. Mm-hmm. So you use the and poem as a means of that.
1: And that's very like science, because after all, so a true that. experiment, you don't know the outcome. And some of the most important discoveries come when um, you have a hypothesis that you test, and the result is not what you expected.
0: Right, right. Uh, We we spoke of the poems that you read, or at least a subset of them, as arising from your period as the poet in residence. Obviously, it's difficult to point to the origins of your work, as, as it is difficult to point to the origins of a scientific discovery, perhaps. But can you say what it was like for you as a poet to be in that scientific environment was it different than the other sources of inspiration you know the pubs that you visit or the you know the people that you know which pubs you know
2: was <laughs> they did play a role in your work Tom. at all um, no that's true I yeah, no, no, it's really interesting because it's, it's funny the kind of uh, uh, imaginative shift that you have to make when, you, when, you, when you're in a different space. Uh, and you suddenly get acquainted with the rules of that space, which are really very different from the ones that you're used to. And it does encourage different patterns of thought. And I think it's, it's, it's um, it reminded me a little of doing versions of uh, of other poets' work. So when I get stuck in my own voice, I'll make a version of a poem by Machado or, or Rilke or something. And and through sort of forcing yourself down their syntax, you get acquainted with how they think, and that has an effect on how you then think when you come to your own poem. And I found a similar thing kind of obtains, through, you know, just seeing the way that people worked, you know, and seeing how ideas were spun out of a particular method, uh, uh, gave me a, a totally different perspective, and how I might do not do something similar, but weirdly parallel in terms of that. that truth-finding that we're both working towards, so yeah. Visiting other people's labs, I suppose,
0: might play a similarly kind of rejuvenative role for a scientist. You can get perhaps stuck in in your own way of working, you spend some time in another lab and it...
1: Oh, absolutely. I think, yes, well, I very much think that diversity of thought is incredibly important and cross-fertilisation of ideas and you really can't do that sort of thing on your own. And it sounds as if you, you um, spend time dissecting other people's thought processes mm. in order to distill how they think. And that gives you, that's a cross fertilization of ideas as well.
2: Yeah, it gives you the opportunity to think differently, I
0: think. Yes. Uh, yeah. If you would join me as we conclude in thanking Graham, who's no longer on the stage, uh, and Don and uh, Veronica very much. Thank you.